This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, progressive news without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll be talking, of course, about what happened Monday in Iowa and what might happen next Tuesday in New Hampshire. And we'll also have our Super Bowl concussion preview with Dave Zirin, sports editor of The Nation. Coming up, we'll have analysis of the Iowa results from Joan Walsh and John Nichols. But we start today with Gary Young. He's the award-winning editor-at-large for The Guardian, columnist for The Nation, and author of the book The Speech, the story behind Martin Luther King's dream. He came to Iowa from London to see American politics at work. Gary Young, uh, welcome. We know the results. Trump came in second, Ted Cruz 28, Trump 24, Marco Rubio 23. On the Democratic side, a tie. The party seemed so completely different. Nevertheless, you think the two parties' results in Iowa have some things in common? I think they do. I think that both of them reveal a kind of an insurgency away from the center. So in uh, the Republican case, you have uh, Donald Trump and Ted Cruz, who between them take up 52% of the vote. And then if you add the 9% of Ben Carson, who frankly, you know, could be anywhere in the constellation, he's so kind of otherworldly and vague, but he's certainly not an establishment candidate, you're up to nearly two-thirds of the Republican electorate in Iowa that one might describe as unbiddable in this uh, uh, in this moment. And then if you go to the Democratic side, frankly, the idea that six months ago that one would have said that Bernie Sanders would hold Hillary Clinton to a draw anywhere, uh, some you know, someone describing themselves as a socialist who is calling for free universal health care, uh, free tuition, you'd say that I was out of my mind. I mean, it's not even a replica of Obama because Bernie Sanders is, for all of his gifts, he's frankly far less charming. And uh, he reminds me of uh, uh, Steinbrenner from Seinfeld. (laughs) And um, far less charming and um, is running on a far more radical uh, plan than Obama ever was. And so to that extent one sees that the party establishments are clearly, neither of them are delivering what their base wants 
it was supposed to be a coronation for Hillary Clinton. It ended up looking more like a regicide. And why do you think the the party establishments of both parties uh, have been turned out to be so out of touch with their own voters in an election year? This is what they're supposed to be good at. It is, and I think there are. I think there are different reasons for each party. I think for the Republicans. Uh, it's kind of be careful what you wish for. You know, they've had yeah. this, you know, the Sarah Palin effect, the Glenn Beck effect, the kind of, um, uh, they've rode that horse and then delivered very little to people after they have kind of, you know, got them all uh, uh, riled up. And that this is now, these debts are now coming due. That the Republican Party, there would have been no, 2010, you know, congressional, uh, you know, sweep. They they wouldn't have both wings of Congress were it not. All of the energy was coming from the Tea Party, um, from the right wing, and um, sooner or later, that was gonna that was you know gonna um, gonna manifest itself in something, and frankly, why not something as bizarre as Donald Trump? I also think that there is something very, very clearly, the kind of Nixon strategy, the um, uh, the Southern strategy, is kind of, um, is reaching its denouement, really. That instead of the dog whistle, now we just have straight up whistles <laughs> that everyone can hear. Mm-hmm. And um, so we have, instead of a coded appeal to racism, a very naked appeal to racism and xenophobia. So in many ways, I think particularly the Donald Trump effect actually exemplifies so much of what the Republican Party has been. Fact-free, whether it's uh, the Swift Boat veterans or uh, the Iraq war, um, the Bertha issue, or the, you know, Obama is a Muslim. So um, uh, fact-free, full of bluster, and relying on a sense, a particular sense of white grievance, which um, when ultimately it plays out, I think it looks a lot like, um, you know, Donald Trump. And what about the Democrats? Why is the Democratic establishment equally out of touch? Well, I think in some ways for similar reasons, that uh, in, uh, analogous reasons, which is that Democrats, they've, um, they've been in power now for eight years. During that time, the gap between black and white has grown. Uh, the wealth gap um, in the country has grown. Obama came in with great symbolic promise, although very little actually written down. Uh, And there's that moment where he's in the room with the bankers and he says, I'm the only thing between you and the pitchforks. Well, this is the pitchfork striking back. Now, it doesn't translate into people feeling, when you talk to people, they're not upset with Obama, interestingly, because they blame his inability to do anything on the Republicans. But nonetheless, they are looking for a need. And here's the difference. It's not just a a flight of fancy. They need substantial change. Those promises, you know, that if you're American, each generation will be better off than the last, that each year will be better than the previous one. The kind of optimism on which so much of this country is founded, and frankly, the reason why so much inequality 
of wealth can be tolerated is if people think there is equality of opportunity. But when wages are stagnant, when uh, social mobility stalls, when wealth, a generation of wealth is wiped out in a few years, people stop believing that. And so somebody like Bernie Sanders comes up and, you know, he articulates a, a real uh, frustration. And then on the other side, Hillary is is a flawed candidate. She is a, um, in terms of people thinking her experience, they like her experience, they understand her experience. But when Hillary offers, you know, her, her rally cry in the last few days of this campaign was, I would rather under-promise and over-deliver, which is a bit like, you know, Everybody, let's go sideways to mediocrity. It's a very, <laughs> yeah. as a campaign promise, what you're saying is, maybe I'm going to be better than I'm telling you right now. And that's really not how campaigning works. So um, lots of people don't trust her, whether that's right or wrong. That's what the polls are showing. And they find it difficult to relate to her. And I don't think there's a new Hillary Clinton to be laid out, I think, to be rolled out. I think people have, people feel that they know her and they feel that they've made up their minds about her. And so the standard bearer for the establishment in the Democratic Party is also, is also flawed in serious ways. Well, a week ago, when you came from London to Iowa, we all thought the story was Donald Trump, and you wanted to tell the Brits all about the amazing new American phenomenon of Donald Trump. You followed him. You, you've re been reporting on him. Uh, we think of Donald Trump as a purely American phenomenon. Do you think that's really true? Unfortunately, no. No, I think that... Um there is a version of Donald Trump in most European countries. Um, in Britain, we have UKIP, the United Kingdom Independence Party. In France, there's a Front National, uh, Marine Le Pen, the Progress Party in Norway, the True Finns in Finland. Uh, and they all have this in common, I think. They prey on a widespread anxiety about the economic and cultural effects of neoliberal globalization. The economic effects being uh, the wage stagnation, of which I spoke earlier, the jobs being exported to China and India and elsewhere, but also immigration and um, the, the kind of cultural other in one's midst. And if you add to that um, terrorism and terror, then you have a kind of um, wonderful rogues gallery of potential scapegoats for the situation that people are in. Um, it could be Muslims, it could be Roma, it could be, uh, it could be uh, refugees, it could be immigrants, it could be Mexicans. But that in each uh, stage, what they're doing is saying, look, these bad things are happening in your life. Now, the bankers, well, you're never going to be able to get hold of them. But here are some people that you can see, and these people that you can see are responsible for the bad things that are going on in your life. And, of course, that's very uh, appealing to a section um, usually of the, the white, uh, lower-middle-class electorate. And, and so Donald Trump, the, the demographics from which he draws... I've got to say the rhetoric that he uses is a bit more polished elsewhere, 
But uh, nonetheless, and they, uh, you know, whether he's talking about the Chinese being cheats or the Mexicans and the wall and, and the Mexicans being rapists, this is part of a, a Western um, sickness, really, that is, uh, is proving quite infectious and it is, has really caught on in Western Europe in a big way. Gary Young, read him at The Guardian in London and at The Nation in New York. Thank you, Gary. Thank you. To understand the Republican results in Iowa, we turn to Joan Walsh. She's national political correspondent for The Nation. She's a political analyst for MSNBC, and she's author of the book, What's the Matter with White People?, and she spent the last week in Iowa. Joan Walsh, welcome back to the program. The Republican results, of course, the big surprise, Trump ended up second, Cruz 28, Trump 24, Rubio 23. Your final post from Iowa had the headline, Is Donald Trump Even Trying? Tell us about that. I didn't catch up with Donald Trump until the very end. I was able to get credentialed for his final, uh, I guess it was his second to last uh, rally uh, on Monday, the day of the caucus. And I was just kind of blown away by it. First of all, uh, in a place that holds at least a thousand people, it was, it, it was about half full. Uh, but more than that, it, it, the crowd was low energy and he himself was very low energy. As soon as he walked in, it was clear he was not happy uh, w- with the small crowd. He immediately made noises about wanting to leave. Uh, and it was all very bizarre, given what we've all been seeing and hearing on television, right? Um, so so that, was, that was kind of my first inkling that something might be off. The second thing was there was nobody there trying to make sure that this crowd, I mean, it was still perhaps 500 people, right, that this crowd knew how to caucus, knew where to caucus, that they were going to caucus for Donald Trump. It was just so incredibly lackadaisical. And, you know, I, I, didn't, I didn't call it in advance because I don't believe in doing things like that, but I, but I began writing up my, uh, my election <laughs> take on it, and I went back into my notes to a Ted Cruz rally I'd gone to on Saturday. And that was where, you know, you really... Uh, if, if you take organizations seriously, which you have to in Iowa, and if you take endorsements seriously, which you have to in Iowa and other places, not everywhere, it should have been clear to me on Saturday uh, that, that Ted Cruz was really making making inroads, that he really had put together uh, an impressive organization. That it was This room was in Ames, Iowa, was packed with the uh, young families, young families with their children. Uh, it was not, it was mainly cruise supporters. You go to a lot of other events in Iowa, and it's really people checking it out. You might even run into some Democrats, right? But this was really the faithful. Um, and I think, I think that's, that's what happened. That's what, that's what materialized on Monday night. For, for Ted Cruz, that kind of Iowa organization. So we all thought the story was going to be Donald Trump, but, but we really need to talk about Ted, Ted Cruz now. What do you make of his candidacy, evangelical Christian? Uh, he went to Princeton and Harvard Law. His wife is a Goldman Sachs investment manager. Tell us what you think of Ted Cruz. 
Well, I, you know, I, I find him uh, somewhat more terrifying than Donald Trump, to be honest. I mean, his he's he is a, a hard right evangelical Christian. He on that in that Saturday speech, he laid out his list of day one priorities, uh, and number two on the list after rescinding Obama's illegal executive actions was having the Department of Justice investigate and hopefully prosecute Planned Parenthood. Wow. That came before ripping up the Iran deal. That came before repealing. Obamacare. So, you know, that's, that's the kind of campaign he's running. And he, you know, he was really, everything's easy in hindsight, right? But a lot of us was, were saying this earlier. He was really tailor-made for a place like Iowa, where he had the endorsement of uh, the, the most powerful right-wing evangelical in the state, Bob Vanderplatz. He had the endorsement of far-right anti-immigrant uh, Steve King, the guy who talks about, you know, immigrants with calves the size of cantaloupes. Um, he had the endorsement of Glenn Beck, who came out and made an almost teary uh, pitch for him that that Saturday. So he really was running the kind of campaign and is the kind of candidate that Iowa tends to reward. But how much should we care about Iowa Republicans? They haven't been much of a bellwether in the past, have they? No, they haven't been a bellwether. I think uh, one reason we should care this year is they did knock down Donald Trump, and they did prove, you know, this is a cliche, but we've all said, I'm sure I've said it sadly, that the rules of political gravity don't apply to Donald Trump. Well, it turns out some of them do, at least in Iowa. So, you know, to see Trump, who's done nothing but win uh, in, in all the polls anyway, and in all the media coverage, to see Trump take a take it on the chin is, is an interesting experiment, and we'll learn more in the days and weeks to come about how he handles that, if it's just one loss in a state that doesn't mean much, or if it, if it actually is telling us something about Trump's genuine weakness, that he's relying on uh, proverbial white working class voters who are detached from the process, who don't tend to show up uh, in in elections and who aren't going to show up this time. We're not going to know that for sure for a while. But, you know, that's that's a that's a big reason Iowa uh, mattered, even if it doesn't tend to pick the nominee, let alone the president. Uh, so Ted Cruz came in in first. Uh, how how many evangelical Christians who win Iowa go on to win the Republican nomination? Uh, none so far. That doesn't mean it can't happen. Uh, we didn't have a black president before Barack Obama, so anything can happen. But it's it, it's it's rather unlikely to happen. Um, uh, so, you know, I don't, I don't, we'll see. Cruz has a lot of money, uh, and he's got a lot of disaffected supporters and he does have a good organization, but, uh, you know, winning Iowa has not been the ticket to either the nomination or the white house. Now my Republican relatives out here, they're, they're just sort of low, low tax, uh, business oriented, uh, mainstream Republicans of the old school. They don't want Cruz. They don't want Trump. Uh, they say the key uh, now is to get the lower tier candidates out of the race so the opposition can coalesce, that is the establishment opposition, can coalesce around a single alternative. Is is that going to happen now? And, and is that going to be Marco Rubio? I think uh, it's likely to be Marco Rubio. We're, we're going to find out. Uh you know, a little bit more in, in New Hampshire. I mean, he made a very a preemptive victory speech last night, which I kind of mocked, but uh, in fact, you know, it was a victory a victory for him. He comes out of, of Iowa stronger. He is trailing uh, Bush and Kasich right now in New Hampshire, but he really does. You know, this is, 
again, Iowa is very eccentric. This is the first vote, but it but it's it is the first vote. It's the first time anybody has had their viability tested, uh, and and Rubio, you know, ha- has some some bragging rights coming out of here. Whether it's going to push aside uh, Kasich or a Jeb Bush, who has done so poorly and yet seems to have so much entitlement to the nomination still after all of this. In a different kind of year, Rubio coming in third might really push the other establishment guys aside. This year, given you know how ornery they all are, how much they don't like each other, and how little the quote establishment really means, I'm not. I'm not sure what happens. I'm really not sure anybody has the power to knock heads together and say, "Come on, Marco is our guy." Um, there are a lot of people who think he's supremely vulnerable. We need to go back to Donald Trump for a minute. Do you think he has a future in Republican politics? He's going to be in New Hampshire uh, next week. Is that going to be it for him, or 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 does he? You think he'll be around a little longer? I think if he really had a terrible loss in New Hampshire, we should have this conversation again. But I think he'll be around longer. I think, uh, you know, he's done well enough uh, and he's angry enough to to keep going. You know, he's been on Twitter and, you know, in the days after the election results, ripping the party and ripping the media. um, And I think that kind of... uh, you know, sense of grievance animates Donald Trump and can keep him going for a while. I mean, if he were humiliated in New Hampshire, which I don't expect, but if he were, you know, we should talk again. But if he if he wins or he comes in a close second, you know, I think he likes, you know, he likes what he's doing. And I, I think he genuinely dislikes these other guys. He likes needling them. We'll see. I mean, on the other hand, he might really want to get home and consistently be able to sleep in one of his own thousands of beds and not be staying at the Hilton Garden Inn uh, in Cedar Falls, which is where he stayed the other night. You know, he died. Can't, I can't see him loving that. But, um, I, you know, I think he loves a lot of this. Joan Walsh, reader at thenation.com. Joan, thanks so much for talking with us today. My pleasure, John. For some insight into the Democratic results in Iowa, we turn to John Nichols. Of course, he's national affairs correspondent for the nation and author of Dollarocracy. Uh, John, Bernie started out in February 50 points behind Hillary in Iowa. How did he end up in a tie? It's a combination of issues, personalities, and place. The issues, I think you've covered well on this show many times. Uh, you know, we're we're talking about things like income inequality, the wage gap, uh, the growing understanding of the, the absolute unfairness of our criminal justice system, uh, concerns uh, going back to the Iraq war votes of, uh, more than a decade ago on you know whether we authorize presidents to take our country into wars that need not be fought. Got a nice long list of them, most of which I think focus in on economics. And when Bernie Sanders decided to run for president, I think a lot of people in the national media dismissed it, but when he went out and started doing those super rallies, what happened was that you had you know tens of thousands, now hundreds of thousands of people who came to those rallies and they heard something that made a lot more sense to them than anything they were hearing from you know most of our national political and, and media elite. So first off, the issues themselves were connected to where people were at. Secondly, 
Bernie Sanders proved to be a remarkably effective campaigner and, and personality for the moment. I, I think it's safe to say he's rough in, in a lot of ways. I don't think anybody would challenge that description. Um, yet uh, he was very firm and steady and uh, very disciplined and on message. And I think also, for especially for a lot of young voters, uh, they found it very validating that their deep concerns about the economy and about the future of the economy uh, were being echoed by uh, a senior elected official, a sitting U.S. senator, uh, former congressman and mayor. So I think he proved to be the right candidate in many ways. And then finally, place. We ought to remember that Iowa is a state that if you give it a lot of time, because these caucuses are very human-scale operations, if you give it a lot of time, if you treat it seriously, uh, you can come from a position of being a relative unknown, even having lesser resources, and work your way up. So I think that, that combination came together for Sanders, and as we know, he, he wrestled to what the Des Moines Register has referred to as a virtual tie and a dead heat. Hillary's people say you have to remember this is a long game. Iowa has only 1% of the delegates to the national convention. Uh, they're still going to win the nomination for Hillary, but, but isn't this a pretty pretty uh, ominous result for Hillary to, to fall 50 points in the, in the first state? Well, but you have to realize she was running against a 74-year-old Democratic Socialist. So I'll be a to go with that. Okay. Uh, and, uh, and so... Yeah, I mean, I think that the, the way to understand the question you just asked would be to reverse it and say, you know, I mean, it, it had, had, you know, Sanders been way ahead and, and, and Hillary Clinton come from out of nowhere and, and got even with them. Of course, they'd be saying it was an epic accomplishment. And so what you need to understand is that any insurgent candidate who comes from a incredibly weak spot, a, a very diminished spot in the polling and in public recognition, who polls even with a clear front runner in Iowa, which is such a high stake, closely watched contest. Uh, yeah, that's a big deal. Now, by the same token, uh, it is true that Iowa is a tiny portion of the electorate, a uh, tiny portion of the delegates that you need to win. And in many ways, uh, you know, certainly not a representative state in every way. It's a much whiter, much more uh, rural state than some, uh, particularly some of those states that uh, Democrats rely on. But I- I'll give you one final counsel. Iowa is a swing state. Iowa is a state that in November becomes very, very important for the nominee of the Democratic Party. And uh, it is interesting that Sanders not only did well in this vote. But if you look at the entrance polling where they asked people who came to the caucuses, and some of the broader polling really connected with people on a lot of levels. There was a lot of regard for his integrity. There was a lot of regard for his long-term commitment. And interestingly enough, I think fascinating, uh, over time, there came to be a, a striking level of acceptance of uh, the fact that he was a democratic socialist. That didn't mean that everybody said that they were democratic socialists. That's not the point. But in the last poll, 68% of the Democrats and independents likely to participate in the caucuses said they were comfortable with the idea of a Democratic Socialist president. That's a pretty remarkable number.
pretty remarkable number. Well, now it's time for a Your Minnesota Moment news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Garrison Keeler. John Nichols, with just a couple of days left in Iowa before the caucuses, Bernie Sanders left the state to campaign in Duluth. I think you're the only person who wrote about that outside of the Duluth News Tribune. Why did Bernie go to Duluth? Well, because Bernie Sanders uh, is running a long-game presidential race. And I I think that that so much of our media makes a horrible mistake when it just focuses this overwhelming amount of coverage on Iowa and then New Hampshire. And I was in both states, or I've been in both states in the last week, and you just can't imagine. You, you literally, you know, get in, in satellite truck traffic jams. And, you know, there's wow. so many media outlets there. Um, and, and so there, there's so many of these places that you presume it all comes down to them. It doesn't. In fact, those folks in the Hillary Clinton campaign who say this is a long game, they're exactly right. Uh, but that's why Bernie Sanders linked Duluth. Duluth, Minnesota is, uh, you know, it's, it's a reasonably good-sized city on the western edge of Lake Superior up there, and it doesn't get a lot of attention uh, at most campaign time, but it's a traditional, blue-collar, uh, very progressive, democratic city, and it's going to play an important role in the Minnesota caucuses which will occur at the start of March. And so Sanders did a very interesting thing. He went to Duluth, had an afternoon rally that attracted 6,000 people. Then he headed down to St. Paul with Keith Ellison and some other folks there and had a rally that attracted the roughly 14,000, 15,000 people and got a lot of attention in Minnesota, uh, reached a lot of folks in a caucus state. And, you know, that's where politics. That's, the, that's how you actually put your marker down for the long term. And both Sanders and Clinton have done a lot more of that than has been noticed by the national media. The reason I think that's significant to note is that uh, those who think this race is just going to dial down after you know, a couple of primaries or a couple of caucuses, I think we're getting a growing amount of evidence just that, no, it's, it's going to go... It could go on you know, well into March and be a very serious race. It could even go longer than that. John Nichols, readamitthenation.com. John, it's always great to have you on the show. Thanks so much. It's a total pleasure. It's happening again this Sunday, the Super Bowl, the biggest TV event of the year. For our Super Bowl concussion preview, we turn to Dave Zirin. Of course, he's sports editor of The Nation and host of the Edge of Sports podcast. Last time he was on this show, we talked about his interview with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and listened to some clips. Dave Zirin, welcome back. Oh, great to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, first, let's talk about pro football as big business, part of the entertainment industry. On the list of the most watched TV events in American history, the Super Bowl holds the top 20 spots. Wow. Uh, The top-rated regular TV show in America since 2011 every year is Sunday Night Football on NBC. The top-rated cable show in America for the last 10 years is Monday Night Football on ESPN. 
Pro Football on TV brings in, we are told, $11 billion a year for the NFL. The NFL is a monopoly exempt from antitrust legislation. Uh, How did the NFL get such an incredibly sweet deal? Oh, man. How did the NFL get such a sweet deal? Well, it actually, it started with some good old-fashioned Washington, D.C. corruption that involves members of the Long family, as in Huey Long, Earl Long, and the the corrupt politicians of Louisiana. You see, New Orleans wanted an expansion team, and they got the New Orleans Saints. And in exchange for the Saints, they wrote in all, with Pete Rozelle all sorts of antitrust status and tax-exempt status um, into an omnibus spending deal for the NFL. And the NFL was such small potatoes at the time. I mean, this is the early, mid-1960s. No one really noticed or cared or thought it was a piffle or even like a smart political move. But this has cost uh, the U.S. Treasury billions of dollars over the last 50 years. I mean, something so egregious. And now the NFL is so big, they actually, uh, this past year, turned down their tax-exempt status uh, because it's not worth the PR headache that it brings relative to all the other incredible perks that they get from in terms of public funding and all sorts of tax breaks that they get. But yeah, you're right that the antitrust provisions in particular is something that's served them very well for decades upon decades. You wrote recently at thenation.com that the NFL, quote, promotes brain damage as entertainment and something great for your children, close quote. This is true. Uh, this season, the NFL teams reported 317 concussions. Uh, The league says it has instituted more than two dozen uh, new safety-related rules, including something they call the Head Health Initiative. What do you think of the Head Health Initiative? Well, it reminds me of another word that starts with H, and that's horseshit. And actually, the latest statistics that the NFL has put forward shows a marked rise in the number of concussions over the previous year. And the previous year, there were tons of critics who felt like those numbers were cooked and manipulated. So even by the NFL's own manipulated PR numbers that speak about concussions in their sport, they're up dramatically. And and this is one of the things that I think creates an existential problem for the National Football League. You know, there's that old expression that the media is much better at covering revolution than evolution. I mean, nobody's walking away from the NFL. The Super Bowl this weekend will have record numbers. But make no mistake about it, there is a broader societal evolution away from this sport, the likes of which I think keeps NFL owners up at night because they know that generationally their sport has a serious problem. Of course, this was a historic year on the battle against concussion Also in Hollywood, we just had that film concussion in theaters. What was the NFL's response to the film? Well, their response was very, very Machiavellian. I mean, it would have made the late Lee Atwater very proud. Uh, One of the things that they did was they sowed information that somehow the film was soft on the issue of concussions. And it actually sold out to the NFL, which wasn't true. But what they used uh, these leaked emails from Sony to make this case. But one of the things it did is it divided people who uh, who have a bone to pick with the National Football League about whether or not the film was a fraud or not. And I can tell you, upon seeing the film, I thought it was fantastic. And I think the NFL used a lot of dirty tricks to keep 
the film from getting the kind of publicity and response that it should have otherwise gotten. I thought the film was terrific. I thought the performances were amazing. And I thought, I mean, I still think that the film in time will stand as a touchstone um, against the league that has honestly just become too big to fail, yet at the same time is failing the people who actually play the sport and the kids who watch the sport and aspire to play it. Well, let's talk about the build-up to this Sunday's game. Uh, at thenation.com, you wrote a piece titled, Dear Cam Newton, Please Don't Read This. For those who don't follow pro football, we should explain who Cam Newton is. He's the quarterback for the Carolina Panthers, favorite to win the Super Bowl. But aside from that, what is the deal with open letters to Cam Newton? I understand yours is not the first. No, no, no. The, the, the traditional open letters to Cam Newton are, Dear Cam Newton, uh, why are you such a terrible role model? Uh, you're, you're not raising my kids correctly, I guess, is the, the underlying thing, because you're too flashy, you're too arrogant. And this isn't a quote, what I'm about to say. Like, you, you dance with too many pelvic thrusts after you score touchdowns. And it's all this hysteria that seems, frankly, better located in uh, people who are concerned about Elvis in the 1950s. Uh, than a quarterback in the NFL. But one of the things that I wrote about, and the, the whole letter was tongue-in-cheek, is that Cam Newton, even by the standards of these, you know, these fainting couch falling letter writers, is uh, which of course they're writing with, a, I think, a lot of racial coding about Cam Newton and who he is, uh, being that he's a black quarterback who is unapologetic about who he is. And that still makes a lot of people extremely, extremely uncomfortable. Uh, for whatever reasons. And I, I guess, you know, you can understand those reasons if you've been following the Republican uh, primary season, uh, that, that all of that is there. But the, the thing about Cam Newton that's so special, though, is that even by their standards, I mean, he really is an amazing person. Um, I mean, he's gone back, he's gotten his degree, he's a doting dad, like all the things they say they want him to be, he actually is. What they can't stand is the fact, and this is just so ridiculously ironic, is that he actually looks like he has fun while playing football, while playing the quarterback position. And there's still like these respectability rules about what it means to play quarterback. I mean, people are no longer shocked to see a black quarterback as they may have been as recently as 15 years ago. But there still is this element of, well, if you're going to be quarterback, you better play it the right way. And that means showing absolutely no joy whatsoever. We hear a lot about Cam Newton, but you've been pretty much the only person talking about another NFL star, one from the past named Rick Sortoon. He died recently. You reminded fans about who he was and about why the NFL isn't paying tribute to him. I think it's a story that says a lot about the NFL today. Yeah, I mean, Rick was an uh, NFL player, an offensive lineman um, in the late 1960s and the uh, early 70s, and he quit the NFL. Uh, because he wanted to dedicate his life to fighting for workers' rights. Uh, that's the whole of it. He joined an organization called the International Socialists through SDS. He fought against the war. He fought for workers' rights. He later went on to be the head of the National Labor Relations Board Union and occupied that post for a number of years. And he, I, I met him a few years ago, and he was an extraordinary person, and he left the NFL. I mean, he walked away from the league, one of the very few who've ever really walked away. Most people limp away. But he walked away because he felt like the messages that the league sent were antithetical to his own values. And so it was a powerful political statement. He's also someone, though, who's been written out of NFL history. 
And it would be a pretty terrific thing if the NFL, they usually pay a lot of attention when people who played in the league die. But there's been no mention of Rick Sortoon, largely because he, he said to the league and all its hypocrisies that they could kiss his ass. And that's something that the NFL does not take too kindly. Dave Zirin, he's sports editor of The Nation and host of the Edge of Sports podcast. Dave, it's always great to have you on the show. Oh, thank you so much. Start Making Sense, The Nation podcast, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded and edited by Jerry Gorin and Ernesto Oriano at Emerson College, Los Angeles. Our senior producer at Start Making Sense is Alan Minsky. Our executive producer is Frank Reynolds. Katrina Vandenhuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at Stitcher, SoundCloud, or iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, give us a rating at iTunes. Five stars is good. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.